Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. You're sticking around here. You can open your Bible to Ecclesiastes. Studying today at the last part of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. My wife's sister just had a baby. She lives in Pembroke, and so my wife went away for the weekend. She took Eliana, my oldest, and Libby, my six-year-old, and they went for the weekend, and I have four of the other kids at home. And my youngest, my baby, decided it would be a good night to stay up late last night. Now, thankfully, she slept through the night. My next three- and four-year-old felt like it would be a good night, a good morning. Around 3.30 in the morning, they decided to get up today. So I've been up for about seven, seven and a half hours. So if I start slurring my words at all, someone in the prime time of their life needs to come and take over for me because today I'm feeling well past my prime as we open up and look at the scriptures together. Uh, My kids have within them this innate sense of justice, and I think probably every one of us uh, have experienced that before. It runs so deep that if I have a freezy that I have to cut in half, and I cut it in half and give one kid about one-tenth of a centimeter more than the other kid, there's an outcry. That's not fair. Why does he or she get more freezy than I get? I mean, we're talking virtually nothing. I remember growing up, my brother and I, we'd have to split a can of pop, and we would do the same thing. We'd pour it back and forth to make sure not a single person got a teaspoon more than the other because that would be unjust, completely unjust for one of them to get more than someone else. I remember growing up, there's, when you're on the playground, there is an innate sense of justice when you're playing sports together. Like if someone cheats, that's all you hear about all day. You cheated. Well, we won. You cheated. That's why you won. Even if they didn't cheat, feel better about yourself by calling them out and saying that they cheated. But if you cheat, you can't win. That's just how the rules go. If you want to cheat, can't win. But unfortunately, those are some playground rules that don't exactly apply in real life. In real life, sometimes cheaters do win. Sometimes cheaters do flourish. Sometimes the evildoers, the wicked, are the ones who are thriving in this world, while those who are godly go through pain. Those who are godly die young. And these are the kinds of questions that we're going to be dealing with today in this last part of Ecclesiastes. This reminder that there's something wrong in the world. Now, when it comes to things that are unjust... There are some things that we can do something about. There are certain things that we can control, like cutting of the freezy evenly. 
Uh, we can seek to cut it even. If you know someone else who is within our, in our church family, you think, well, that's not fair. They have very little. I have a lot more. There are things that we can do and things that are under our control to rectify that which is not just. But there's a whole lot that is just outside of our control. And that is what Solomon is dealing with here today. He's dealing with that which we simply cannot control. Dealing with these realities where Sometimes the reality is the godly young person who exercises every day dies young. And the person who smokes whatever they can find and lives however they want grows old to 99 years old. And there's so much of us, especially when a young person dies and we say they have so much potential, we look at that situation and we often will say that that just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair as well that there are those who are godly young couples who desire to have a baby but are unable to get pregnant, while the teenaged couple who are not married, who have no desire for a baby, ends up getting pregnant. Situations like that in the world where we say that just doesn't seem fair, that that kind of thing is happening. How is it fair that some of you have kids who sleep through the night and I have my kids? <laughs> Everything about that for me today seems just so unfair. And there's a number of different ways that this gets dealt with. There's a branch of theology, even, even comes into, creeps into Christian circles, and, and it's karma. You've heard karma before. Karma is you're getting what's happening to you because you deserve it. You're getting the, the suffering that you're going through because of something you did either in this life or the next. And it just seems so black and white, doesn't it? Well, that person is suffering because of something they have done. And how incredibly unloving is that? And how, how much did that just point us to, well, I'm just going to sit on my couch and not worry about that person that's suffering because, well, they're just getting what they deserve. It's an incredible, incredibly unloving kind of theology. And it creeps in even in Christian circles where they say, well, God is punishing you for something that you have done, and that's why you're going through what you're going through. You have cancer because of something you've done, and God is punishing you for that. It's how some people have dealt with that question of what is fair and what's not fair. Well, it's fair that they're suffering because they have done something wrong. The problem with that kind of theology is Jesus. Jesus who doesn't teach that. Jesus, who in John 9, the disciples say, that man who has been born blind, was that his sin or was that the sin of his parents? And what does Jesus say? It was neither. It was so God could be glorified at this very moment. Jesus doesn't teach karma. And Solomon is also not going to teach karma here. Solomon wrestles with that question of, of why life is sometimes Unfair. He's going to share with us a couple of very important truths. He's going to share with us that the reason for this is this is a world that we live in right now that's marred by sin. This is a world that is a crooked world, and the reason that it's a crooked world is because it's filled with people like you and like me. It's filled with sinners, and sometimes even the wise are sinners. 
And the foolish are certainly sinners too. And so because we live in this broken world, this world that is aching for another day, this world, the scriptures talk about groaning for a better day because of its crookedness, because of its brokenness, because we live in this world, there are certain things that happen that we are going to say, oh, that just doesn't seem fair. But it's the result of living in this world we live in. Then he's going to go on to share with us how we can live in light of that reality, how we can live in light of living in this crooked world that is marred by sin. So let's read it together. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to the end of chapter 7, 29. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 15. And we've seen, seen Solomon throughout the course of our study in Ecclesiastes searching for kind of the, the meaning of life, searching for what can bring him ultimate satisfaction and going to well after well after well and it kind of turns out empty, finding out that those things were never meant to satisfy us. And today he's, he's really going to focus in on this well of wisdom. He's going to look at the well of wisdom and say, is, is being wise something that will bring me that kind of uh, answer to the meaning of life? And to the reason for things, to the scheme of things, is how he words it here. So verse 15 of chapter 7. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I have seen everything. He says, I've seen righteous people who die young, who die in their righteousness even. Now, who do you think of when you hear that? Of someone who died in their righteousness. You think maybe of some of the martyrs of the faith, someone like Stephen, someone like James, who died for their faith in Jesus. The ultimate example, of course, is Jesus. Jesus who died in his righteousness. The murder of Jesus, you look at something like that and say that just doesn't seem fair. That evil that's been done towards him was not fair. Since I've seen everything, righteous people who perish in their righteousness, in their righteousness, but also wicked prolonging their lives by doing evil. And when an ungodly kind of human trafficker dies, there's something about that that just seems fair, does it not? Just seems like, well, they, they're, they're getting what they deserve. And, and Solomon's even going to wrestle with this a little bit. And, and, this very question of when someone who's very evil dies, well, that, that, that makes sense to us. But when someone who's righteous, someone who's lived a godly life, when they die, everything inside of us says that just doesn't seem fair to us. That seems unjust. And so how do we respond to those kinds of travesties of justice? Should we, this is where he's going to go to, should we demand that God gives us all the answers? When you look across the world and you see evil prevailing, should we say, God, why are you allowing that to happen? Or maybe we should just kind of throw in the towel and give up. We look across the landscape of the world. We see that sometimes the righteous die young and sometimes the evil prevails. So I'm just going to throw in the towel, forget life. Or do you want to just kind of withdraw together and let's party like it's 1999. The year 2000 is going to pass and everything is going to explode. Remember that? Just party like it's 1999. Forget about life. I'm just going to party it up. And so Solomon, in in verse 16, he provides really somewhat surprising applications, two surprising applications to that reality of sometimes the righteous die young and sometimes the wicked grow old. And so how do we respond to that? Verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too 
wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So I put on the screen like that to see the, the, the structure that he's given. Now, when you read that first verse, verse 16, that first part of it, be not overly righteous. That's one of those verses that you say, huh? What is he saying? Be not overly righteous? Does he saying just be a little bit righteous? Seems a lot more doable to me anyway. Do not be overly righteous. What does he mean by that? Now, do not be overly wicked. That makes sense to us. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? You get involved in the drug scene. You get involved in a gang. You likely will die before your time. You will die a young, you will die as a young person. Very greater and a much greater chance that that's going to happen. So that makes sense to us. But then that first part, do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, why, why would he say that? Now, I just want you to hold on to that just for a moment before I get there. Uh, I, want to, I want you to remember something, something the Bible teaches in regards to sin and something Solomon's going to tell us right here, and that's this. I mentioned it earlier, but every one of us in this room is a sinner. Every one of us, whether you are wise, whether you kind of lean to the side of being foolish, you are a sinner. We're all sinners. Now, we have to recognize that there are Every sin is an offense to God. Every sin separates us from God. But there are certain people in this world who essentially live lives of sin. There are, there are people in this world who think, think of the pimps who traffic children. Think of those people who kind of lead gangs and have people kind of hit men, attack other people. Think of tyrants who invade smaller countries than theirs. There are certain people who, certainly when you look at them, they essentially live lives of sin. And so the danger of being a fool in that regard is obvious. About 90% of the murders in cities are said to happen because of wicked people killing each other. In the midst of gangs, in the midst of fighting over drugs and those kinds of things. And so the lesson here is don't run with that crowd, don't join that gang or you'll die before your time, is what Solomon says. Now, contrast that with the person who's the kind of the goody-two-shoes person. The person who seeks to do good all of the time. The person who kind of pulls their, uh, what's the line? The, holds their bootstraps and pulls them up, that kind of a person, and does so with the hope that God is going to bless them, or with the intention that God is going to accept them. And that's what he is talking about when he's talking about the overly righteous. Someone who is seeking to earn God's favor. So that word overly is an important word, is an important adjective, which differentiates the overly righteous from the righteous person. So Solomon's making a very big difference here using that term overly as if to say it's the person who really puffs themselves up with their goodness, with their righteousness, and kind of looks down on others for not being that kind of righteous and seeking to earn God's favor with that. So he's saying, why should you destroy yourself? That's not going to prolong your life, he discovered. So why destroy yourself even trying to do that? It's not that Solomon is against righteousness. He very much is in favor of right conduct and right speech and right actions. But what he's against here, what he's speaking out against here is attempting to tie God's hands with your righteousness, thinking that you can tie God's hands with your righteousness or open his hands to blessing by your good deeds. So you think in terms of the Proverbs and Proverbs being filled with general truths, 
Righteousness and wisdom are often, you're, you're blessed with long life is how the Proverbs talk. And wickedness and folly lead to a shortened life. That's generally how the world works, but that is not how it always works. And so Solomon is saying we can't count on being overly righteous to prolong our lives. Don't, don't, don't try to destroy yourself to do that. Instead, he says in verse 18, it is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So your ultra-righteousness is not going to prolong your life. Your life is in God's hands. You can only count. You can count only on God, and it's up to him how long and how many days we spend on this earth. Is this conclusion that Solomon is coming to here. And so this is what he've learned, he said. In all of this, what, what does he learn? This is what I've learned. To fear him. To fear God. You fear God, and you will be successful either way. And so what is success for us? The fear of God. It's trusting in God alone. Not trusting in ourselves. In a sense, what he's saying, it's good that you should grab hold of God and trust him with your life. Or even better, to have God grab a hold of you, like we sang earlier, and have him hold you fast in those times of life. So kind of all this conclusion as he wrestles with all of this, what is success for us? Success means trust. Trust in God alone. Now look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise Man, more than 10 rulers who are in the city. So again, last, like last week, he's talking about wisdom that has value. Wisdom has value like money last week, that it offers protection in, a certain, in certain situations. And now he's saying wisdom has value. Wisdom is strong. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't, don't just give up on wisdom because it can't pr- prolong your life. But out of wisdom, you can have strength. It strengthens you. And he says it's stronger than 10 rulers who are in a city. Now, that, that's kind of language that we're not that familiar with. That's not using the analogy that we would make. But we may say something like this, or I would say something like this. My wife is a perfect 10. When I say that, what does that mean? When I say that my wife is a perfect 10, I'm saying that there are some beautiful women in this world, but my wife is super-duper beautiful. And so in this context here, it's like he's saying that. Fully lost my spot. I was thinking about my wife as a perfect 10. (laughs) So my wife is the super duper beautiful. 10 rulers in the city is this picture of super strength. But one wise man, he says, is even stronger than that. That's like super duper strength to be wise. And so what wisdom has value this is some good background music. I should something a bit more, something a bit more powerful there, and that would have been moving to have the music say that as well. Um, so he's saying, pursue wisdom, seek wisdom, live a life of wisdom, seek to live wisely, but understand that there are limitations when it comes to wisdom. Now look what he says in verse twenty: Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, you pursue wisdom. Wisdom gives you strength. It's better than it's 10 rulers of the city. It's super duper strong, but it has its limitations because you cannot be perfect. You cannot be perfectly wise. Uh, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So before you get up on the pedestal and think, I'm wise, Solomon kind of knocks you down off of that pedestal and says, even the godly 
are ungodly. Even the godly sometimes choose themselves over what they know they should choose. Even the godly are sometimes ungodly. We can say even the godly and the wise, even the most wise person on this planet who wrote this book, sins. And you study the life of Solomon, you see he sinned a lot. So even the most godly person sins. And so you cannot put your trust in wisdom to give you that kind of meaning and satisfaction in life like you think you can. And if you doubt that, Solomon provides an example using the smallest, one of the smallest parts of your body. Verse 21, he talks about your tongue. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. He's saying, I hope you know that those around you, those who are close to you, have slandered you behind your back. You think, well, how could they do that? And he says, well, think about yourself and how you have done that yourself. It was Pascal who said, if we knew everything we knew, we knew everything people said about us, even those closest to us, there wouldn't be any more than four friends in the world, something like that. So you think, well, how you talk about some people behind their back, understand that they talk behind your back. And it's this picture, a couple of things. Uh, number one is, so don't listen to everything that people say about you. Um, Don't listen to the fool who talks behind your back and slanders you. Don't take to heart everything that's said of you. Don't take to heart when people speak ill of you. You know, last week we we heard it's good to be rebuked by the wise. It is good to allow the wise to speak into our life and rebuke us. But if you overhear someone rebuking you who is maybe a fool, maybe it's a different kind of source, then don't take that to heart. If someone like Paul Penny rebuked me after this versus some random person in the chat on YouTube rebuked me after this, who am I going to listen to? Not the person on YouTube. So don't take to heart what fools on YouTube say about you. But be open to being rebuked to the wise. So that, that, that's part of it. And, and the reality is you think in terms of that, you have, you have no control over what someone else is going to say about you. I have no control over what you are going to say when you're having lunch and, you, and you're talking about the sermon and how bad it was this morning and how off Mark was. I have no control over how, uh, what you're going to say in that situation. But if that catches wind to me, I do have control over how I'm going to respond to that situation. And so we, we have to respond in a Christ-like, godly way, in a wise way. But there's also parts that we just don't have any control over. Now, the other thing Solomon's doing here is pointing out this kind of sobering truth again, this reminder that you're a sinner. And and if you doubt that, just listen to the way you talk. Listen to the words you've said. Listen to the things that you've said about other people that have put them down to kind of puff you up. Listen to the, remember the lies that you have spoken out of your mouth and be reminded that you are a sinner. Just as others have talked behind your back, you know yourself, you have talked behind their back as well. And if you want any proof that you are a flawed human being, that you are a sinner, look no further than right between your teeth. 
and the tongue that's in your mouth. This is why Jesus in Matthew 12 says, by your words, you will be condemned. What comes out of your mouth reveals your heart and what's inside your heart. Every one of us, we're sinners. It's a feel-good message of the morning. Go home, feel good. You are a sinner. But this is why the cross is so beautiful. Apart from this acknowledgement that we are sinners, why, why would Jesus have to come to the cross at all? When we acknowledge and recognize that we are sinners, that our sin separated us from the holy God, and we see that Jesus came for us to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, that we can be reconciled to God, that our sin could not be held against us, that we're not going to get what we deserve because Jesus came and died in our place. The cross makes sense only in terms of recognizing that you and I, we are sinners, and that's why he came. He came to bridge that separation that we created because of our sin. He says, surely there isn't a righteous person on this earth. And there wasn't. As Solomon looked across, there wasn't a righteous person on this earth. But there would be one who would come, who would be perfect in wisdom, who would be perfect in righteousness. And his name was Jesus. And he would be our substitute on the cross. And this is what we celebrate. This is why we're here today. Because Jesus paid for our sin. That we could be forgiven. That we can live in relationship with Now look what Solomon says next in verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? So you can see it's shifting now from our moral limitations. We can't be perfectly wise. Now he's, we we can't be kind of perfect in our morality. And now we shifted to our kind of our mental limitations, that we cannot be perfect in our thoughts, in in, in wisdom, that ultimate godlike wisdom is elusive and it is far too deep for us to fathom. It's unattainable for us. Solomon says, I try to grab it, but it's like jumping into the middle of the ocean, swimming to the bottom and touching the bottom and then coming back up. It's too deep for me to attain. It's too deep for me to understand. It's just far too deep for me Solomon says, and so it's not something that is attainable. And so part of wisdom is to admit and to acknowledge that we can't know everything. God-like wisdom is too deep for us to grasp. It's only going to make sense that things are going to happen in this world that God is going to allow to happen that are not going to make sense to us. And they may never make sense to us. And I think so often we think in terms of God being just someone like us. He's just a perfect version of us. And yet the scriptures say God is so much other us. He is holy, holy, holy. And so there has to be parts of God that we don't understand. And if we think that we, we, we should be able to understand God in his fullness, it's kind of the height of arrogance to even think that. And it's foolish to think that that we are going to fully understand God, that we're fully going to understand everything that God does and why he does it. These are limitations that we have as flawed, created human beings. And those limitations are intentional. That God alone is perfectly wise. That God alone is perfectly 
righteous. His thoughts are too high and too deep for us to understand. And so to admit that we don't have all of the answers, it's what shows wisdom on our part. It shows wisdom on our part to to recognize that we won't ever understand all there is to know about how God works in the world and why he allows certain things to happen. Now, verse 25, we kind of see this uh, other element being added to that question. We've seen him kind of working through why is life unfair? Because we live in a crooked world. We live in a crooked world that's full of sinners. Even the wise are sinners. Now he's going to tell us maybe something that's a bit obvious, but he's going to kind of zero in on a little bit. He's going to tell us now that fools are sinners too. Now look at verse 28. And listen to how many times the word search or find or sought out is used. He's, he's searching. And his findings are now focusing on the fools. Verse 25 tells us what he's searching for. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So I search and search. I, I search determined to find wisdom, he says. Determined to discover the meaning of of things, the, the scheme of things, he says here. The NLT translate the, the the New Living Translations translates it this way: I was determined to prove to myself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. So this is what he searched and searched and searched to discover. And verse twenty six, this is what he lands on: I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He discovers Lady Folly. Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs, who is contrasted with Lady Wisdom. Now, Lady Folly is this kind of personification and embodiment of of folly, whether it's sexual sin or not. Now, it seems to be referring to sexual sin here, but Lady Folly in the Proverbs is this personification and embodiment of that which is foolish, of that which is folly. Now, why? This gets attacked a little bit. Why is Lady Folly a woman? That hardly seems fair. Is Solomon being sexist here? And I don't know about your experience, but my experience is that men tend to be a whole lot more foolish than women. Surprised I didn't hear an amen there, but that's fine. <laughs> why is Lady Folly a woman? And why, in, the, in the contrast that to Lady Wisdom, and that, that, that maybe makes more sense. But why, why is Lady Folly a wisdom? You have to remember that Proverbs was written to a young man. And so this is a father writing to a young man. And so it makes sense that he's going to, to speak in terms of um, kind of this metaphor of the pursuit of women to make his appeal, to make what, these kinds of wise sayings. And we see throughout the scriptures that so often men and uh, men whose decision to remain faithful to God or succumb to idolatry was often very closely associated with the women that they chased after. And Solomon himself ran into this trouble himself with 300 wives 700 concubines is a thousand different women in his life. And first Kings tells us every one of them worshiped other gods. Every one of them he allowed to lead him astray. So the reason for the personification of folly as a woman is because of the context and because of whose Proverbs was written to not because women are more foolish. So I just want to be very clear on that. 
And so we're also introduced to Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom personified as a woman. And Proverbs speaks of Lady, Lady Wisdom who's crying out in the streets, uh, calling everyone to embrace her. And those who do, there is a blessing. But then that other voice in the voice of Proverbs is Lady Folly. Lady Folly, she's loud, she's wayward, yet her words are smooth and seductive. And those who embrace her are trapped, Proverbs says. And Solomon here, speaking in terms of Lady Folly, says her heart is snares and her hands are fetters. So just as the wise son keeps away from the house of Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon picks up on that here in Ecclesiastes and says, the wise person resists the trap of Lady Folly, that he who pleases God escapes her, but the foolish are taken in by her. And you think in terms of probably one of the best examples of this is in Genesis 38 and 39 to see the contrast of these, where you have Judah who gives in to Tamar. And then the very next chapter, we have Joseph who Potiphar's wife seeks to entice him and he flees. And he flees even at great expense to himself where he ends up getting thrown in prison by his fleeing. And so the principle out of this is to flee Lady Folly. To flee that which tempts us to sin. Now temptation is going to be something every one of us is going to have to, 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 to deal with. But there are certain situations where we just need to flee that altogether. If you struggle with pornography, you need to flee the unattended computer or device in your hands. If you struggle with drug addiction, you need to flee those people who are enabling you or encouraging you or supplying you with those drugs. If you struggle with gambling, you need to flee out of and away from those casinos and away from maybe Niagara Falls altogether, especially Las Vegas. You struggle with sloth. You need to flee the couch. You struggle with gossip. You need to flee from people. At least people who won't call you out on it. The wise who won't rebuke you and instead will just listen to you and encourage you in your gossip and say, oh, really? You need to flee that. Even if it's in the form of a prayer request. Got to flee that gossip. The one who pleases God escapes her, he says. So rather than give in, we flee. And it's not just referring to sexual sin, it's referring to all sin. We, we honor God by fleeing, he says. We, we please God not only because it's right, but because what we've discovered through Ecclesiastes is the only place we're ever going to find that joy and that satisfaction that we so deeply long for. The place where you can know kind of joy that lasts forever is found in seeking to please God. Now, verse 27 goes on and says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, why adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have, found not, uh, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all of these I have not found. Now, that last verse is one of the hardest verses in all the scriptures to understand or to even interpret. There are so many different ways that this verse is interpreted. I went down the bunny trail and I got lost somewhere to the point where I don't, I don't know what that verse is saying. But let me share with you a few of the options here because it sounds very sexist what he says here. 
one man among a thousand I can find. And some translations add in the word virtuous or upright. Now, that's not in the Hebrew, but some add it in because of the next verse, and they believe that's what the context is. If you don't believe it's in there, talk to Brett. He's looking it up right now to see if it's in there. <laughs> it sounds one man among a thousand I could find who is virtuous, but I can't find any women among a thousand. That sounds a little bit misogynistic. And if, if you Google search enough, you're going to find many people who point to this verse and say, look at how sexist the Bible is. Now, is that really what he's saying? And, and here's why I would just simply say, I, I, I highly doubt that's what he's saying. Now, we have to look at then what is he saying? Now, one, one in a thousand is like, we, we don't use that term so much, but we do use the term one in a million. So if I were to say to you, Pastor Andy, he is one in a million. What am I saying? <laughs> we know what that term means. When you say he's one in a million, it means he's very rare. It's hard to find someone like Andy. Uh, it's possible that that's what he's saying. Uh, essentially, it's virtually impossible to find someone who is virtuous. Even among all the men in the world, perfect righteousness is found and one in a million, meaning you're not going to find someone who is like that. So that's, that's one idea that he might be saying. But who are these women he's talking about? There's a number of different options here. Uh, some suggest, and I kind of lean to this, but I'm really not sure. Uh, some suggest it's referring specifically when he says, not a single woman I could find who is like this. It may be referring to the thousand women who he had in his life, the 300 wives or the 700 concubines, who every one of them worshipped other gods and he allowed to lead him astray. And so he says, in all of those thousand, I did not find one who was virtuous. And that was his own mistake for chasing after the wrong woman. So it's possible that that's what he's saying. I kind of lean to that. But perhaps a good point to make out of this is, if we can't even understand what Solomon is saying, how much less can we understand the ways of God? Solomon's hard enough to understand, to think of God who is perfect in wisdom, who is so much other than us. To understand all of his ways would be foolish to think that we would be able to do that. But he goes on, the whole point that Solomon's been making throughout this narrative here, throughout these verses, is there's no one who is righteous. And so it seems to be driving home the point here, there's no one who's righteous. There's no one who's perfect in wisdom. This is why wisdom is at some point going to fail us. Wisdom does offer protection. Wisdom does give us strength. But at some point, wisdom has its limitations. It can't bring us to that place that we hope it's going to take us. Because every one of us are sinners. There's no one who is righteous. And so Solomon's saying, I looked and looked. I looked for that kind of wisdom that perfect wisdom, but it was too deep for me. I couldn't find it. But this is what he discovers in verse 29. This is where he zeroes on. This alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So you cannot find one in this world who is perfect in righteousness. And whose fault is it? God made man. God made Adam is the translation here upright. But it's Adam and Adam's offspring, you and I who sought after many schemes. It's you and I who strayed. It's you and I who chose 
sin. And so whose fault is it? And so he's zeroing in on this alone I found. You think in terms of the whole world and how the world is unfair. You think in terms of the injustice that's in the world. This is what I found, Solomon said. It's our fault, not God's. The finger pointing that so often we like to look up should be pointed out and should be pointed in. This alone I found. We are the problem. We are to blame, not God. Because of the choices that we have made. Uh, 1928, the Times newspaper invited a number of different authors to submit the answer to the question of what is the problem in the world? What's the problem in the world? What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote the shortest response. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear sirs, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world? Why is the world is as it is? It's because it's filled with sinners like you and me. And Solomon, after his search, he concludes, the finger pointing needs to not go upward, but needs to go back at ourselves. You can't always explain why bad things happen to godly people. We can't always understand why God allows wicked people to flourish and doesn't just destroy them. We can't understand those things. But what we can understand is it's because we live in a world that is broken. It's because we live in a world that is marred by sin, that is groaning, groaning for a better day. Now, what I love about Ecclesiastes 7 in terms of the rest of the scriptures, as Ecclesiastes 7 is not the final answer to this question. That this is not the final word on this topic. And as we see the redemptive story of God unfold from this side of the cross, we see that there was one who was perfect in righteousness. We see one who was perfectly wise, who came for us to die and rise again, and he ascended to heaven, and he's coming back. And we know that there is a day coming when he will judge the righteous and the wicked. He will judge the living and the dead. And the righteous will not be declared righteous because of their ultra-righteousness that they earned. The righteous will only be declared righteous on the basis of trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is an end that is coming, that this world that is marred by sin is going to come to an end. And that end is going to come when that one Jesus comes back and makes all things new. And that which is broken, he will mend. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more unfairness, no more injustice, but he will turn this world that is marred with sin into something beautiful, the new heavens and the new earth. And part of trusting Jesus today is is understanding that we are going to go through pain. We are going to go through suffering. 
And this acknowledgement of recognizing that we're the problem, not God, doesn't just make the pain go away. I fully get that. We're still going to go through this pain. We're still going to suffer. But one of the beautiful things that we see in the gospel and throughout the word of God is that we do not suffer in vain, but we serve the God who, as we saw last week, is making straight that which is crooked. We serve the God who is redemptively at work in this world, using even the pain and the suffering of this world for his glory. Just as he did with Jesus at the cross, turning that which was horrific into the greatest possible good this world could ever know. So it means that what we go through in this life, we don't go through in vain. One day it'll be no more. Sin and injustice will be no more. Everything that's wrong is going to be set right. And we can rest in him, both now and in that day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the ways in which Ecclesiastes points us to your son, Jesus Christ as being the answer that Solomon was looking for. We thank you that Ecclesiastes points us to Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, that you used that which was horrific in the murder of your son, Jesus, to make possible for us to be reconciled to you to make possible our sins to be forgiven, to be justified by faith in your Son. God, we are so grateful that you would do this for us. And we are grateful that you are at work in the midst of the brokenness of this world and that you are bringing about your redemptive purposes in the midst of the hard things and the pain and the suffering of this world. And as we sing this closing song together and think in terms of this song that's been written in the midst of some of the deepest pain, a man who lost those who he loved and who were very close to him, a man who lost everything in a giant fire, that he could sing these, he could write these words that we are about to sing together. May that be a reminder for us here today that you are working in this world for your glory, that you are redemptively in work, at work in this world, drawing men and women and children to yourself, and that we can know peace when we know your son, Jesus Christ, when we trust in his finished work on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin once and for all. We thank you for these words that we are going to sing together and the reminders that we are about to sing together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, 
And this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless.